brings life, leads us in truth, guides us, it, it corrects us, it trains us. Um, and so it's an important part of what we do to, as we come together to worship, to hear from God. So we're going to be in Exodus 20. We're making our way through this book, this wonderful book of the Bible. Um, and we're taking some time to slow down a little bit in the Ten Commandments. Originally, I thought I could do this in one message, but that was unrealistic. So we're doing three messages on the Ten Commandments. So today we'll be in the latter half um, of the Ten Commandments and focusing on the first three of those, the commandments that have to do with loving each other according to God's law. Um, so as you turn there, let me ask, have you ever heard of feral families? And you can show the next slide, Dan. Um, feral families. The idea is that uh, it's a family that lives without rules. Um, there's no rules or structure for the children or the parents. The kids uh, can get rid of regular school. They can get rid of regular bedtime and other restrictions. Um, if they want to face paint themselves uh, or something like that or shave off all their hair and run around with a sharp axe, uh, that's fine. And it's all done in the name of uh, strict, uh, getting rid of strict authorities and realizing our full and natural potential. By the way, that picture is not from a feral family. That's from another incident that probably is like what goes on in a feral family. So the idea is to get away from rules and, and to get rid of structures so that you can, you can achieve your full potential. Now you might be thinking, this sounds a lot like my family. Um, perhaps it does. Um, if you look into it, actually, it is a phenomenon. Um, they actually don't jettison rules or structures. They just recreate and redefine them because the reality is you can't live without rules. Um, you need structures. Uh, families and individuals would not survive. It's not too healthy to run around with a sharp axe. There are consequences. We live in a world of rules. There is good and there is evil. And there are therefore are ways to live in light of that. Avoiding the evil and pursuing the good. And ultimately this is because it's God's world. It's God's universe. And God is good. And God hates evil. And, and we all live in His universe, therefore there are rules. The Bible presents rules for us, and, and as a whole we call this the law of God. And these Ten Commandments we're going to look at in Exodus 20 are really a, a summary of His law. It's in some ways a cheat sheet. Uh, these ten rules can be used to cover basically all the other rules, which are all about, we've learned, love. Loving God, loving one another. And so these Ten Commandments are a cheat sheet for that, and, and then the laws are elaborated throughout Scripture. But we need His law. We need to understand His law. We need to live under it, and it's really important to wrestle through that. So let's pray, then we'll read, and then we'll take time to, to go through and consider the truths in His law and how do we relate to His law. So let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your law that You don't leave us to try to figure out how we ought to live. We don't need to recreate or redefine the law. You've given us Your Word, and Your Word reveals Your character and, and therefore Your law. I pray, Lord, You help me uh, to teach and proclaim this. Help us to listen. Help us to be affected by Your law in all the ways You intend. Lord, bring conviction. Bring the power to run to Jesus in light of our conviction and our need. And bring power to, in Jesus, live a new life according to Your law. Lord, 
do these things and magnify your holy and worthy name. As a result, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Exodus chapter 20, I'm going to just read verse 1 and 2, then jump to verses 12 and 17. Verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then verse 12, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or or anything that is your neighbor's. God's Word from Exodus chapter 20, 12-17. This section of Scripture and what we're learning in Exodus, uh, we're learning that we are called to a covenant relationship with God and that we respond in this covenant relationship by loving Him and loving others according to His law. We must love others according to God's law. That's the, the bottom line here. Let me take some time to give some background, to review some background. I think it's really important to help us understand His law and how it fits in to, um, to everything that He reveals to us and what we're called to. First, uh, we've talked about this before, that it's really important to understand that God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. That He relates to mankind always through covenant. A covenant is a social contract. Um, It's a a solemn, official social contract given either explicitly or sometimes implicitly. Um, In this covenant, there's an arrangement where there's blessing that God brings. There's grace, a gift of blessing. And then He calls us to belief and obedience. And then there's blessing as a result. Particularly in the In the Mosaic Covenant, uh, it's arranged that way. There's God in His grace uh, acting for His people and then calling them to obedience and then promising blessing. Um, The New Covenant uh, is the ultimate covenant that Jesus provides. Um, And in that covenant are the same elements, but Jesus Himself is the one who's provided perfect obedience. And in Him, through faith in Him, we are connected to God. We live under His grace. And as we believe Him, we receive His blessing. And He does indeed in that call us to obedience. But obedience is not a condition in the same way as it is in the Mosaic Covenant. We'll take time uh, in two weeks to talk more about that, to compare and contrast these two covenants. really important to understand them both well uh, and to take time to, of course, to, to dive into the Sinai Covenant as we're doing. There are other covenants that are all connected. Uh, there's the covenant with Adam and Eve, Covenant of works, theologians call that. A covenant with Noah, with Abraham. Um, covenant here with Israel, the Sinai covenant. Covenant with David. Um, but all these covenants are arrangements for relating to God, and God always relates to us through covenant. Ultimately, this is fulfilled in Jesus in the new covenant. We relate to God through now the new covenant. The covenant we see here throughout the book of Exodus um, is again structured this way. We've seen it already in verse nine, uh, chapter 19, verses 4-6. through six. God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. So God says, I have, I have taken care of you. I've rescued from the Egyptians. I've acted graciously for you. Brought you to Myself. And He says, Now therefore, 
If you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is Mine. And you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God has acted in a, a powerful, gracious way to rescue them. And now He's calling them to respond in obedience. And if they obey, there is great blessing. They're to be a treasured possession among all peoples. They're to live as this kingdom of priests uh, in this glorious way. Actually, if you read the, the, through Exodus and elsewhere, it's a wonderful promise of, of who they are to be as His treasured possession. Now, we will see that they fail very quickly. Hence the need for Jesus to come and rescue us and provide a better covenant. So it's important to understand that context. Covenant is the context for law. God gives us law in in the context of covenant. And the law is given here. God gives His law. So these are the specifics of how they're to obey so that they might live in the blessing that He has for them. He details that throughout the first five books of the Bible, but here in the Ten Commandments, it's, it's as I said, the cheat sheet. It's God actually uh, revealing His law audibly. He speaks to the people audibly, uh, these laws. And they are very much afraid as they recognize who God is and what He's saying. The law um, is really the details of love. Jesus sums up the law as loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. But the details matter. It's important not just to say, well, it's just about love. If we just love, you know, we'll cover everything. That's true, but the details matter. The details help us see what it looks like to love God and love one another. Um, Laws are given throughout the Bible in different ways. They can be stated positively. So we've already seen the, the law, keep the Sabbath holy. It's a positive statement. Do this. Do this thing. Um, sometimes it's stated negatively. So you shall not do this thing. So we will see here, of course, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. Don't do this thing. Um, sometimes it's concise, right? Do not murder. Other times it gets expounded. Um, matter of fact, I would say do not murder uh, gets expounded in all that we see in the Bible, how we're called to live together as those made in the image of God. Do not murder is the negative summary of living out the image of God together in community. We'll get into that as we go. So the law always, um, whether, it's, whether it's positive or negative, short or long, always points to a deep value that God has and a deep aspect of His character. There are lots of laws in Scripture that detail these things. 613 commands in the Old Covenant, 1,050 in the New. Um, and it's all about living out love together. The law is good. The law is perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law. We don't like the law because we're broken in in our sinfulness because of the fall of humanity. But the law is good. All that's about the law is all good and glorious. The law is meant to function for us really in three important ways. And I I hope this sticks with you. Um, Theologians use other terms, but I'll put them in terms of some metaphors. First, the law is a mirror. So I think we have some pictures, Dan, to help remember. The law is a mirror. The law is a moral mirror. In other words, it gives a a perfect reflection of who we are. When we look at the law, it's like looking in a mirror and we see ourselves as we really are. It evaluates us. Just like when you go to the mirror to see, like, you know, have you combed your hair? Is your face clean? Uh, It shows you as you really are. You might not like what you see, but it is what 
is. It is you. And that's how the law is. The law shows us what we're like morally. So when we look at it, it shows us what is good and what isn't, what needs fixing. And it can be scary, but it's a good thing because it's truth. And we need the law to be a mirror to show us what we're really like. We should be unafraid uh, in Jesus ultimately to, to look into that mirror and face the facts of who we are because there's rescue. The other part, the second purpose of the law, use of the law as theologians call it, is as a policeman. And this is the effect, the police effect, right? So when you're driving down the highway and you're going, um, hopefully not too fast, but you're going over the speed limit, 75, actually most of, this, most of the traffic on 93 and 95 goes about 75, right? So you're going 75, you know what happens when there's a police, a police person at the side of the road, or if you have ways that says caution police ahead, everybody slows down, sometimes like way too slow, like, hey, the speed limit's 65, we don't need to slow down to 50. But that's the police effect. And that's how the law works as well. Um, that, it, that it basically says, here's the standard. And it speaks to people and cultures of what the standard is. And it gets us to slow down in a sense. It keeps us from uh, crazy driving. Uh, a lawless society is, is a dangerous and miserable thing. The third use of the law is as a map. So for us as believers, we look in the mirror, we confront the police, and it's to drive us to Jesus. Because we realize I've fallen short. I've fallen short of God's holy commandments. And I've been caught and I've been arrested. And now I run to Jesus for forgiveness. Jesus is the only one who has fulfilled the law. He, was, uh, he fulfilled all righteousness. He's the perfect, true Israel. He's the second Adam. He fulfilled the law. Um, and, and He presents a perfect sacrifice to the Father in our behalf. Um, and, and so He lived out the law and he, then He dies for us in our place paying the penalty for the law. The wages of sin is death. He sheds His blood to pay for our failure to keep this good law, to love God and love one another. So we run to Jesus. We find in Him it, through His life and His death and His resurrection, forgiveness and new life. That's the wonderful thing. That we turn and we put our faith in Him. And He promises in that place we are forgiven. We are counted as righteous. We are counted as sons and daughters. And now the law has a new function. It's a map. Because now we live in Jesus. We have this new life in us. And it's helping us to overcome uh, the old man, the, the, the fallen nature, to live this new life. Um, and it's the map for our journey. It shows us what it's like now to live in Him. So those three uses of the law, I think, are helpful as we look at the law. Um, and, and it helps us relate to the law. So with that in mind, let's jump into the commandments. We're going to look at the fifth, sixth, and seventh commandment today and learn about obeying the law. So the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is given you. Um, this commandment, these, these next commandments are about relating to one another. And this first commandment about loving one another is a call to honor father and mother. The word honor there is the same word for glory. Um, and it, it means technically to give weight. To consider something worthy or weighty. And so we're to honor uh, our father and our mother. We're to consider them weighty and as important. We're to live our lives where we, where we consider who they are and their role. And, and of course, that role changes. When we're a young child, it means obedience. 
young adult, it still means obedience, but there's a little difference there. And then as a, as a full adult, there's not the obedience, but there's still to be the honor. We're still to consider our father and our mother as, as weighty, as important. Um, it's interesting here, it says, honor your father and your mother. That was unprecedented pretty much in the time. Um, it was expected, of course, to honor your father, but your mother it wasn't in the same category. And the Word of God is very consistent in its regard for women um, as, as equals of men in worth, not equivalents, but equals. Um, and so the father and the mother are both to be honored uh, as parents. It's interesting, too, to think that this commandment is the first commandment about relating to others. And the next commandments that follow are pretty hefty commandments, right? After this, honor your father and mother, the next commandment is what? Do not murder. Wow. So honor your father and mother precedes do not murder, do not commit adultery. These other commandments that are, that are understood across probably all cultures as, as weighty, it's the first one. And I think we should take note of that. It precedes these other commandments probably for a few reasons, a couple reasons. Um, it's important. It's the foundation, actually, of all the other commandments. So if you don't learn to honor your father and mother, it's likely that you are not going to do a good job with the other commandments. Um, it's experience as a child developing, right? As you develop and begin to understand how to live in your world, your first commandment, is honor your father and your mother, and the others follow. Um, also, the family is the most fundamental social unit, so failure here leads to failure elsewhere. So God puts it at the front of these other commandments. That, that should catch our attention. It's the first commandment with a promise that all may go well with you, that you may live a long life in the land. Um, so there's a promise, and in the Old Covenant, that meant literally living long in the promised land. So the promise is, honor your father and mother, you'll live long in the promised land. Um, you, there's probably two aspects of that. First, you're going to tend to live a successful life and not get into trouble, not uh, get yourself in the place where you're going to be subject to dangerous things and, and, and do bad things that there'll be penalties for. But also, you'll keep yourself in the covenant. Um, you'll keep in the land, and, and you'll keep away from exile, God says in the Old Covenant. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll, you'll be cursed. You'll be put out of the land. You'll be exiled. Now that eventually happened to them. And so literally it means staying in the land. Learn to honor your father and mother. will keep you in the covenant, keep you in the land. But it's interesting to note that Paul actually picks up on this very command in Ephesians 6, if we could project that. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Interesting. Paul picks it up in Ephesians and it's, it's almost pretty much verbatim. Um, and he calls Christian families, children and Christian families, to do the same, to obey their parents, to honor their father and mother. And he has the promise there, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, under the new covenant, the land, of course, is not geopolitical Israel of Moses' day, but ultimately it's the new creation which will be real land, a real place, and there will be a political aspect. Jesus will be ruler there. But it's different than the Old Covenant. So it's that new creation. And, and for us, it, it begins now, though we're not in that new creation yet, we are part of the kingdom. 
And so what Paul is saying is that this commandment still has the same sort of impact. Because honoring your father and mother will have you to listen to them, listen to the truth later on, right after this, he calls uh, fathers and parents really to bring children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So how do children hear that? By honoring their father and their mother. By listening. So you get in the land by honoring your parents. By listening to the good news spoken by them. Um, so it leads you into the land that way. And then of course, it keeps you in the land. It confirms and keeps you in the land as you honor your parents. Your, your obedience matters. To stray away from obedience is to stray away from the Lord and to have your salvation ultimately called into question. So there's still that impact of blessing of keeping in the land from it. It's interesting to see that and to note that. This is an important commandment. Um, four out of the six commandments that have to do with loving one another carry with them a potential death sentence. Do you know that? Four out of the six. Um, so if you disobey under the Old Covenant, that's under the Old Covenant, by the way, there was a death sentence, a possibility of a death sentence. So if you could project Deuteronomy 21, here's, here's where it's explained. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of the father or the voice of his mother, and, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Elsewhere it speaks of this, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall be surely put to death. He has cursed his father and mother. His blood is upon him. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Wow. That should hit us in our culture pretty hard. And you're probably thinking a couple things like, wow, that's really heavy, or maybe, wow, that's, like, that's over the top. And that's because we're in a culture that treats this commandment as kind of like an optional commandment. We, we don't like it to be that strict. We have develop the idea that, you know, a little rebellion is a good thing. Now, of course, there is a place for a, a child to grow into adulthood to be able to make their own decisions. And there's a place and a, and a commandment for uh, parents not to exasperate their children with legalism and, and domination. Um, we could talk about that. Those things are really important. And, of course, there's a place for a, ch a child's response being different than a young adult, different than an adult's. But nevertheless, this commandment is here and it's heavy. And it brings with it a capital punishment for disobedience. And we need to recognize that and what the law of God says here in the Old Covenant and apply it to ourselves. We need to recognize that we live in a culture that, that rebels against us. Most of us grew up in a teen subculture. Sometime in the early 20th, the mid-20th century, we as a culture, uh, Western American culture in particular, developed a teen subculture. And this subculture has actually grown to be the dominant culture in our broader culture. The teen culture, the teen subculture, drives the rest of the culture. 
it's really interesting. And just so, you know, just look at the things that go on in, in overall culture. Style, trends in style, music, movies, food, media, technology, lingo, values, and many other things are defined and driven by this teen subculture. And this teen subculture has largely cut ties from this important commandment. And we grew up in that. And it's around us. It's out there. That's what's there in our, in our country. It's the reality. And you pay a price when you do this. I paid a price as a, as a young man. I knew this commandment. And I don't, I don't mean to blame the culture either. I knew this commandment as a young man. I had memorized it, actually. I rejected it. I lived for my teen subculture. I lived to impress my friends. I lived to find my identity with them versus with my family and with God. I failed to live up to what was best for me. I was lazy in school, lazy and uninvolved at home, uninterested in the many wholesome pursuits my parents recommended. I wanted to be popular and cool in the eyes of those who were least able to judge what was truly valuable. I pursued things that were evil, even worse. I made, my life, my, made life for my parents pretty miserable. I was a partier, immoral, violent, proud, and foolish. I put my own friends in harm's way, all because I was driven by that subculture foolishly. And uh, I look back at my life and I'm grateful that God didn't take my life because of the, of the risk and things that I did. I think we all probably have stories, uh, those of us who have grown up in this teen subculture, to varying degrees, um, maybe not as bad as mine, maybe worse. But we live in this culture that has dismissed this commandment and its weightiness. Honor your parents that you may live long in the land is an important, very important commandment. There should not be a teen counterculture. There shouldn't be rebellion and foolishness. It's not God's plan. God has something much, much better. He calls us to honor our father and our mother that we may live long in the land. Next commandment, you shall not murder. Two simple words in Hebrew, no murdering, straightforward, um, not taking, stealing the life of someone else, um, speaks to the personal realm, of course, there, in Israel, in the Old Covenant, there was a place for capital punishment and warfare, uh, and that's another topic we could talk about in the New Covenant. What does it look like? How do we understand those things? There's probably a lot more nuance than we might expect in that, but this is more in terms of personal, personally taking the life of another. You should not murder. It's a horrendous evil. It strikes at the very core of what it means to be human and to reflect the glory of God. Uh, it's, it, this prohibition is based on the fact that people are made in the image of God. So to strike someone down, be it someone else or yourself, self-murder as well, is prohibited. It's to strike down the image of God. It's to sin not only against humans, but against God Himself. Genesis 9-6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in His own image. James, in speaking about how we should speak about one another, says, with it we bless, speaking of our mouths, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. People are made in the likeness of God. They are the image of God on the earth. 
Therefore, we must not murder. More than that, we must make sure that we honor people. We respect people. We care for them. We love them. See, this commandment is the negative. It's the shorthand negative for the extreme. But, it, but with it, it speaks to a deeper value. A deeper value of honoring those made in the image of God. Of treating them with love and respect. People are of great worth. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. They are priceless, and therefore we must relate to them appropriately. And it's not just about avoiding murder. Jesus expounds on this commandment by going deeper. And He says in in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So this commandment isn't just about avoiding the extreme. It's about how you regard people, how you treat people. Not insulting them. Not not denigrating them. Putting them down. But there's more to it. If you read the rest of the passage, Jesus says, so, so, don't murder means you must need to honor others, speak of them rightly. And then he says, so, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So, is a connecting word, right? Jesus is saying we need to make sure that we honor people and not dishonor and insult them. So, if you have a conflict with another human being made in the image of God, what's your job? Go and be reconciled. So the same principle that says do not murder says honor, but also says do not allow outstanding conflict with those made in the image of God. And don't think that you can come before God Worship God with that sort of conflict going on. Because you are insulting the image of God by allowing that conflict to continue as far as you are able. So don't come before the true God to worship until you've dealt with that. That's what he's saying. That's, that might be a new thought for some of us. The connection is there. It's clear. To remain angry and avoid reconciliation is to disobey this commandment. Not in the extreme, but in the principle. And, and, and I just want to encourage you to, if you are in conflict, if you have outstanding conflict that's there that you haven't addressed, and sometimes we address it and we, and we can't do anything because it's, it's only as far as we're able. But if you do, you're not to, you're not to leave it that way. We're to pursue peace. Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, talks about this idea. And he talks about the the two wrong responses. There are peace takers. Those who in conflict want to win. They want to conquer. They want to shut the other person up. They want to extinguish that other person so that they can have their way. And ultimately, uh, Ken Sandy talks about that, that if you take that to extreme, it leads to murder. It's snuffing out a life. So peace takers want their way and they want to snuff out the other person. On the other side are peace fakers. And, and we might think that that is somehow okay, but it's not. A peace faker is the one who sees conflict and runs away. They don't snuff out the other person's life by beating them down. They snuff out the other person's life by ignoring them. And they run away from relationship. And they run away from honoring the image of God by pursuing 
reconciliation. And Ken Sandy says that, that that ultimately is expressed in suicide. Suicide is from the Latin. It means self-murder. And so these are all connected. This commandment doesn't just speak to avoiding the extreme, but avoiding fulfilling the principle of honoring those made in the image of God, pursuing reconciliation. And by the way, if you are in conflict, um, you are, you are uh, dealing with something that we all deal with. Everybody faces conflict sooner or later. So it's not unusual. If you are stuck in conflict, um, get help. And we as pastors are here to help. We want to we help you obey this commandment. We want to help you fulfill this commandment. In Jesus, you have everything, every reason to seek reconciliation. And as far as you are able, you live at peace with all people. You're to be peacemakers. And, and probably 80 or more percent of my pastoral counseling is on this topic, helping people work through conflict. And, and that's, it's an honor to get to do that because I'm helping by God's grace along with other pastors, and, and we can all help each other with this, helping people be peacemakers, fulfilling this commandment. Finally, and will have to be more quickly. You should not commit adultery. Again, it's a short command, and it points to a deeper principle. It points to marriage and what God thinks about marriage. God loves marriage. God is not a killjoy. God is not squeamish about sex. Actually, there's a whole book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, devoted to married sex. It's an erotic book if you read it and interpret it properly. He's the one who invented this. He loves marriage. He loves sex within marriage. He's not squeamish. This is not a puritanical commandment. This is because God loves what He's created. And marriage is about reflecting the image of God. We are made in the image of God, male and female we're made. God says, let us make man. Let us make man in our image. God is a plurality, three in one. He is an eternal Glorious, intimate union. The intimacy of the, of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is greater than any intimacy we could ever know. And so when God makes mankind, He says, I want to make them male and female. The Trinity are, are three. They're one in being, three persons, different in their function. So there's, there's different persons. There's di diversity in that. And yet there's unity. So when God says, I want to make mankind, in Genesis 1.26, He makes mankind in His image by making them male and female. He makes them different on purpose. That as they come together, they would image Him. And that applies in marriage, of course. It also applies ultimately in what marriage points to. That's the, the church, the union of the church with Jesus. So you don't need to be married to be part of fulfilling His intention for the image of God as male and female. Single people will image God in their masculinity or femininity in the context of the church as they live out who they are, as they are, are intimate with God Himself, and ultimately when Christ returns, or when we get to be with the Lord, intimate together as His whole church. Not in a sexual way, but, but in a, a deep way. And so we're made for this sort of thing. And within marriage, this is how God, how God expresses who He is in the, in the union of a husband and a wife in their complementarity together as men or women, as a man or a woman, coming together. 
So his commandment, do not commit adultery, isn't just about to avoid the extreme, but it's about fulfilling the purpose for marriage and for humanity. Marriage is very important to God, and breaking a marriage covenant is a terrible thing. And God calls us to fulfill this. And so, the New Testament picks up on this in Ephesians 5. It it says, here's how you fulfill this commandment. What's behind this commandment? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So the Ephesians 5 takes this idea and says you need to fulfill it in Christ as a couple by the wife imaging the church and its relationship to Jesus as the husband imaging Jesus in his relationship to the church. And so this commandment, the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, points to this idea of marriage, the sanctity, the importance of marriage, one man, one woman for life. And it points to God's intention here. So Ephesians 5, learning for women to trust God and to support their husbands, submit to His leadership. Husbands to lay their lives down in sacrificial service for their wives, to love their wives as their own bodies, to put their wife first, is what God intends. And so we could say, well, I've never committed adultery. I've never slept with anybody and yet be failing in obedience to the commandments. God calls us to fulfill this, to walk in all that He intends for marriage. And I'm grateful for many examples around us of fulfillment of this. People who are reflecting these truths, though imperfectly. I, I read uh, this week about a couple, Mary and Wilfred Kepler. I think we have their picture to show. Maybe not. But they were an elderly couple, um, married for seven decades, over 70 years spent their final hours together. They succumbed to COVID-related complications and they were together to the very end. Were able to hold hands and be together. Um, They were in their 90s when they they died and they left a legacy of of children, grandchildren, uh, great-grandchildren and a legacy of love and reflecting this commandment. That's what God calls us to. A lifetime of loving this way. And we mustn't settle for less. This commandment is here. It's shorthand for all that God intends for marriage. So let us not say, well, you know, I haven't haven't committed adultery and then neglect our marriages. That would be a contradiction. We shouldn't and mustn't settle for less. And we all need help. We all need help in this area. Hear God's command and recognize your need for help. In conclusion, and very briefly, We've looked at these three commandments. And I trust as I've gone through it, it's worked in your life like the mirror, the police, and the map. Let let the law do its work. Let it do its work. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings conviction. He uses the law. He uses this truth, the Word. Let it have its way. Let it go to your heart and point out where you're failing 
Maybe it's a new thing. Like, I thought I was doing okay with the do not murder thing. Now I realize, nope, I've had, I have these outstanding conflicts. I thought I was doing with the honor your parents thing, and now I realize, wow, I, I would probably be put to death back in those days. I thought I was doing with the do not commit adultery, but you know what? I've really kind of given up on my marriage. Let the law do its work. Let the Holy Spirit bring conviction. And let it drive you to Jesus. Your only hope, a real and sure hope, who has fulfilled the law on your behalf and shed His blood to cleanse you. The blood of the Son of God in the flesh cleanses us from all of our sins. As you turn to Him, you are clean. You are forgiven. He rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death to give you new life and power. So now, not only are you clean, but He's living in you. He's creating His image in you. And you know what? If you are a believer, you put your faith in Him, it's only going to get better. One day, you will be free from sin entirely. You will look like Jesus in in your own version of that in, in goodness and holiness. So look to Him and let the law be a map for what He wants to do in your life. Let's take full advantage of all the ways that He works, all the means of grace, the Word, prayer, good Christ-centered fellowship, the church, corporate worship, the sacraments, service to others, all these means of grace that He uses that are very important in all this process. But let's respond to, to His Word and His law. And let's run to Jesus and let us learn to live in this new life. Let's just take a minute right now and as uh, we prepare to transition, just to take a moment to respond in personal prayer, to go before the Lord, bring these things before the Lord, and pray and ask Him for help.